I want to take a minute to tell you about Federal Access. Federal Access is our coaching and training platform that we develop for government contractors. The resources in Federal Access have helped our clients win over $13.6 billion in government contracts. When you become a member, you're going to get access to hundreds of documents, templates, training videos, on-demand webinars, and you get SME support from me. So if you have a question, you can email me directly anytime. Here's a special offer for Game Changers listeners. Visit federal-access.com forward slash Game Changers today and get started for just $29. That's federal-access.com forward slash Game Changers to get started for just $29. Now let's get into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. And got an old friend here, Matthew Schoonover, on here with us today. And Matthew, not everybody knows who you are. You've been around and been on the podcast before. You've been in the Game Changers for Government Contractors book. Uh, Why don't you take a minute, tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, sure. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be back with you today. I am Matthew Schoonover. I am an attorney in Olathe, Kansas, and I work exclusively with government contractors, primarily small businesses, some large businesses, but uh, exclusively with government contractors. And I work at a firm called Schoonover and Moriarty, and together with my colleagues, that's all we do is serve as government contractors. We also run the blog govconbrief.com, where we address or, or write about a few of these topics as they relate to government contracts. And really through our practice, we try and help small businesses on really just about any issue that pops up when it comes to government contracts. So we'll work with folks through regulatory compliance issues, FAR compliance or SBA compliance regulation or compliance with SBA's regulations, excuse me, socioeconomic program compliance and, and application issues. We'll work with them through the mentor protege process, joint ventures and teaming as well. And we'll also work with them through kind of the nastier side of government contracts, the more litigation side of government contracts, where if there's a protest involved, bid protest or a size protest, we'll represent them through that process. If there's performance dispute with the government, we'll represent them through that process as well. So really, we try and help small business federal government contractors really work well in that base. That's a good overview there. And as I'm always telling our clients, you know, when it comes to having an attorney, an accountant, anything like that. This is not like your normal business attorney or or whatever. You need somebody who specializes in this because the areas that they're going to be dealing with are so specific to government contracting. So you can't go and get your attorney who does your will. That person's probably likely not going to be able to help you at all when it comes to a protest or any of the things that we're going to talk about today. And so it's one of the main reasons I like to have experts like yourself on here today for people to actually get to know folks as well as get to hear some of this insight that you have. Before the show, we were talking about a handful of topics. Why don't you kind of give us an overview of a couple of the things we're going to touch on today? One of the things that I think it's important to talk about based on our experience working with clients, a lot of the things that small businesses are looking for lately, particularly in the age of consolidated contract opportunities, fewer and fewer contract awards of greater and greater value, is how do you make yourself more competitive? And I'll talk with folks about using mentor-proteges and joint venture agreements and teaming relationships to make themselves more competitive or using socioeconomic 
economic programs to make themselves more competitive. But really kind of overarching, no matter who you are or what industry you're working in, what are some of the pitfalls that come from being a government contractor? What are some of the things that if you submit a bid in our kind of anecdotal experience, what are some of those things that are more likely than not to make a proposal lose or to make a proposal less acceptable to the government? When you're thinking about joining a teaming agreement or a joint venture, what are some of these things to keep in mind to make sure that these relationships are successful? Or in our experience, when do these relationships fail? You know, really kind of establishing yourself and setting yourself up for success in the federal marketplace is really what I wanted to talk about today. And it's a pleasure to be with you to do so. I thank you for, for making the time to do it. And I think that's a great title for today's, you know, the pitfalls of government contracting, because so many people paint this perfect rainbow of how everything is just going to fall in line and you get these statuses and that makes everything amazing. And on top of that, you know, if you go and do some joint venture stuff, Yeah, I think this is a really good topic talking about the pitfalls of government contracting because I do think everybody paints this perfect picture of how government contracting is going to go, especially when you start talking about getting your status or the joint ventures or mentor-protege. I've really had a lot of discussion lately about that one. So maybe that's where we start, where people have come to me and just said, hey, brand new to government contracting. I know I need to team, but here's this idea we have. You know, we know this one guy over Lockheed Martin and you know they'd like to do a mentor protege with us I'm always like well have you done anything with them before have you done anything in government contracting before and I always start walking them back from that so maybe you can talk a little bit about in general first some of the the pitfalls from mentor protege and then we'll get into the teaming side and proposals and all that kind of stuff certainly and and I think that's a great point that you make because you know a lot of times there are these kind of newer businesses that are out there and to their credit, they're doing a lot of research about how to feed in federal marketplace and things like mentor protege agreements pop up. And so they automatically think, well, in order to be successful, I've got to do this mentor protege agreement. And in some cases, that is right. But I like to kind of akin the mentor protege agreement to a merit. That is, if you do a mentor protege agreement, it's a six year relationship under the SBA's regulations. And you can only have two of them as a protege over your lifetime. So before folks enter into a mentor-protege agreement, I really tell them, you need to start dating this company first. You need to have a relationship with this company and with the individuals within the company that will be working with you throughout the mentor-protege relationship. Understand how they operate. Understand the type of assistance that they can provide that you will get from them under this relationship and really make an assessment as to whether this matches long-term with your business plan, with where you want to be in 10 years as a government contractor. I think that that is, you know, there's this crush to get a mentor. And a lot of times, you know, the question I am asked is, well, you know, the mentor-protege program sounds great. Now, how do I find a mentor? And unfortunately, there's not a repository that I'm aware of where potential protégés can go in and say, here's what I need. Here's the industries I work in, all of this type of stuff. And mentors can say, here's what we're willing to provide. And folks can kind of, you know, use that as a matchmaking service. There is not that 
that repository. And so I tell potential protégés to think about those businesses that they have a relationship with and that they emulate. Maybe they used to work for a company and still have contacts over there. They left on good terms and can still do some work with them. That prime possibility for a mentor protege. Maybe they teamed with companies in the past and got along really well and did great work with them. That's a good potential mentor for you as well. Maybe there are what I call frenemies out there. Say you're in the 8A program and you know of a company that's been very successful in the 8A program and is maybe getting close to their graduation period or a small business that is maybe close to approaching its size status limit and may lose that small business status, that might be a company that is possible mentor for you given their soon to be changed circumstances. So I tell protégés, really think about your industry. Think about those companies that you can emulate and maybe that you have a relationship with and start slow. Start that dating process, so to speak, before you enter into a mentor-protege relationship. Maybe consider teaming with them under a few different contract opportunities so you can understand how each other works and know whether or not it's going to be a good relationship going forward. That's really one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would have, not legal advice, mind you, (laughs) but advice kind of along the lines that you were saying, Mike, uh, really make sure that this company is one that you can work with. I think that's really good advice. And I think you learn a lot of the little nuances as you're working with them through other things. Like here's a lesson that a client last year had to learn the hard way about their mentor. We were going through and I said, well, tell me a little bit about your mentor. And uh, they're going through and I'm like, well, they're only in the commercial industry. So I just stopped them right there. And I said, so why are they your mentor in government? Well, Um, um, I, I, you know, like, like this whole stuttering thing, one of the things they should bring to the table because you're new, but one of the things they should bring to the table is relationships and they have no relationships. So how are they going to help introduce you into some of this, this market? They don't have any past performance with the government. So now you've got two strikes against you with this relationship. Didn't you know this before you got into it? Well, yes, sort of, but I didn't realize that that didn't matter or that, or that it mattered so much. Like, yeah, it sort of matters a lot. What are they, how are they going to mentor you in government contracting if they've never been a government contractor? I mean, that is like the most fundamental question you could have asked in the dating relationship. And had you been dating, you would have known that. But to your point, there goes one of their two mentor protege relationships. And there's a lot of people that there's a lot of people that also don't know there's two mentor protege programs. You know, there's the SBAs and the DOD. There's two different programs that are out there, but there's just so much information that you can learn when you sit back and do the research versus rush to get married. Like, hey, I feel like a lot of people are on like one of the little dating websites and they're not looking for a date. They're just looking for a marriage proposal. Like, hey, let me swipe left and right, whichever one it is, swipe left or right enough times that I find somebody that matches. And then my first meeting is down at the courthouse to get married. That's how most of those seem to go. And I think that's why it goes so poorly for most people. They, They have not spent the time dating, getting to know each other, getting to know who they know in the market or any of that kind of stuff. I like your advice about who do you know? There are databases as far as like 
Sam goes to figure out, well, who's already selling to your market? Who's already doing that? Because you may determine that, hey, yes, I know somebody over at Lockheed Martin, but I should really be talking to somebody at General Dynamics because if I look at who my ideal buyer is, they're the ones that are selling 80% of my services to that buyer. There's some data we can look at, but if you don't know anybody at General Dynamics, then it's kind of hard to build that relationship. You got to start somewhere. I like the idea of starting with people you know, doing some teaming relationships and things like that. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's also something I bring up all the time to clients where they say, hey, and I know this kind of crosses from mentor-protege over into the JV side. People are always saying, Mike, I think we should do a JV with this. And I'm like, hold up. That's a legal entity. Why not do a teaming relationship with them? And they're like, I don't know. We never thought of that. People jump to, whether it's mentor-protege or JV, it seems like they jump to the most extreme example first instead of something simple like a teaming agreement. Any thoughts on that one? I'm with you. I tend to think that if the solicitation is right, that there is really not necessarily much of a benefit over performing as a joint venture versus performing as a prime sub team. And you are correct that a joint venture is itself, when we talk about a small business joint venture under the SBA's regulation, that's a separate legal entity that has to have its own SAM registration, its own bank account, on its own DUNS number for now. Even though it's its own legal entity, the joint venture itself is not actually performing the work. Instead, it's performing through the joint ventures. And the limitation on subcontracting applies along with the performance of work requirement for joint ventures. So there can be some complicated issues when it comes to joint ventures where a regular prime sub-team relationship may work just fine for the particular opportunity that uh, folks are considering exploring. I'm often asked, you know, hey, how do I know? Is this thing I should team under or is this something that I should joint venture under? And the answer, you know, so often, you know, the devil is in the details. The answer oftentimes is in the solicitation. When an agency is evaluating a proposal from a joint venture, because the joint venture itself may not have past performance. The SBA's regulations say that the evaluating agency should also consider or must also consider the experience of the past performance of individual members as well to the joint venture. And so sometimes maybe you'll get a solicitation that says we're only going to consider the performance of the prime offeror. And in that case, if you're bidding as a prime sub team and your subcontractor has a lot of good, really, uh, really good past performance that might not be considered or that wouldn't be considered under that type of an evaluation, then you might look at that and say, okay, maybe we can joint venture this. So the subcontractor's past performance would be considered at that point through the joint venture relationship. So there are issues like that that may pop up. There, there could be issues relating to work share split and everything like that that could impact that relationship and, and whether it should be a prime sub team versus a joint venture. Those are all kinds of individual questions that, that Mike, I think you're exactly right. Sometimes people just assume that one relationship over another would be beneficial without actually knowing why they're going after this as a joint venture versus a prime sub team or the other way around. 
I think most people assume that, hey, if, if we're a joint venture, then all their past performance is relevant. All my past performance, our status, our size, all of that's going to go together. It's like we've meshed these two companies and this is just 100% the facts. This is just the way it is. There's so many assumptions that I think people make about the joint venture that they leap to that. Again, like I said, they leap to the most concrete, extreme situations, whether it's JV or mentor-protege, when something so simple that takes minutes to form a teaming agreement, it doesn't require a new SAM profile or any of that kind of stuff. It's such a simple solution that I wonder if people just think it's too simple and that's why they just leapfrog right over that and go for the extreme situations. I was talking to a client just the other day and I said, look, you don't have time to form a JV before you submit this proposal. There was like two weeks for them between when we were talking and when this proposal was due. And I'm like, you don't have the time. Number one, you don't have the other company lined up yet. So let's start there. You're assuming in two weeks you can find the partner, form the JV, set up the bank accounts, get your SAM profile. <laughs> you are really hoping the stars align here and oh, by the way, again, we're getting into a legal entity with this other company that you haven't even identified yet. So you haven't dated them yet. And now you're about to wrap yourself up in a legal entity, which I guess that's really a good area that you could talk about. What are some of the legal implications? If I create a joint venture with a company, I don't know. What are some things that could go wrong with that? And that's a wonderful question. And I, I but I want to, if, if I can, before I answer sure. that one, you raised a wonderful, wonderful point about timing when it comes for joint ventures. I can't tell you the number of times that a client or a prospective client reaches out to me and says something like, we've got a bid due this week and we need to get a joint venture agreement in place for this joint venture. Mike, to your point, it's not so simple because there are a lot of steps in the process, particularly if the joint joint venture is not yet established as an entity. You know, you've got to, as you say, get it set up in SAM. Well, that's not as simple as just going to SAM.gov and entering that information. First, you've got to have it registered uh, with a particular state. You've got to have a XID number. As I mentioned right now, when we're recording this, a DUNS number, you've got to get a bank account, all of these kind of preliminary steps before you can even go to SAM and get this registered. And all of those steps themselves take time and some may be dependent on others being completed before you can move on to the next app. And the rule is it has to be registered in SAM at the time you submit the bid. I tell folks, listen, don't wait till the last minute. But setting that joint venture up should be the very first thing you do as part of that bidding process. Get it all out of the way. And then so you're devoting your time after that to actually putting proposal together. And keep in mind, by the way, that if it's a mentor-protege joint venture, you have to have the mentor-protege agreement in place for two, meaning that you've got to get that negotiated and submitted to SBA and approved. And right now, SBA has taken anywhere between three to six months to approve mentor-protege agreements. It's not always been that long. It's sometimes been you know dramatically shorter than that. But it goes to the broader point of you're at the mercy of other entities to get these things approved. And so waiting until the very end to do it, I think it's just foolish. Do it at the outset so that you know you've got time and things are in place. I think that's great advice. So beyond that, some of the performance aspects to your question that, that come into play or the legal implications that come into play as part of a joint venture. Under SBA's regulations, each venture is 
obligated to ensure the performance of any contract that is awarded to the joint venture, even if the other venture withdraws from the joint venture. I mean, the government wants assurance that if it awards a contract to a joint venture, either of those companies is going to complete performance of the contract that is awarded to it. So one of the things to consider as a small business when you're going, you know, one of the beautiful things about a joint venture is you can leverage each of the ventures' capabilities and experiences, past performance, resources, all of that great up to win contracts that are larger or perhaps more complex than you might be able to win on your own. That's the beautiful thing about a joint venture. But the other side to that coin, kind of the double-edged part of that door, is that if each venture is obligated to ensure performance, if you don't have a good relationship with your joint venture partner and they withdraw and you're left holding the bag for performance, think about those implications on your company. I mean, you could be risking negative EPAR ratings. You could be risking termination for default. All of these core consequences if you're not able to actually do this work. And so, Mike, to your point, you really want to make sure that you've got a good joint venture partner that you can work with that will be there throughout the process and won't leave you just kind of holding the bag, so to speak, if things get difficult. You really want to make sure that it's somebody that you can trust to perform to meet their end of the deal so that two years into a five-year contract, you know, you hit a little bit of a rough patch. You know they're going to be there working with you still through it. I think that's one of the things that from I when I work with small business clients, when joint ventures kind of go sideways, and it doesn't happen often, but it, it does happen. It's usually a breakdown in communication that precedes it. Maybe there's been some personnel at the other venture that left or been reassigned and the new personnel isn't as understanding or committed to the joint venture process as the prior personnel was. Performance suffers as a result. And so you need to make sure that you've got those good relationships with your joint venture partner so that contracts will be performed and that positive relationship will continue even if folks who you're working with today may, might not be there tomorrow. Yeah, the, those are all really, really good points. So as we're, we're starting to wrap up here, you know, we sort of talked a little bit about teaming, not a whole lot about teaming, but one of the things that you mentioned earlier was about some of the pitfalls during proposals. Why don't we we hit proposals and if we have some more time, we, we can circle back to teaming. What are, what are some of the pitfalls around proposals that you see? I've never written government proposal. I usually see them on the back end when they're being litigated through the protest or the uh, performance dispute process. The biggest pitfall that I see, and this one sounds very simple, but when we're talking about bidding on an opportunity and losing the opportunity, the biggest pitfall I see is not following the instructions of the solicitation, not providing the needed information or the requested information by the government, or worse yet, a Assuming that the solicitation says or means something based on your interpretation of it. I have a rule that if in doubt, ask for clarification. If the part of the proposal that is vague, maybe it contradicts another part of the proposal, maybe it just doesn't square with how industry does type of stuff. Ask the contracting officer for clarification. Ask the contracting officer to change that requirement. The, the solicitation, as it's written by the agency, is the rule of the game. And it does 
doesn't matter if you've been doing this for 30 years and know better than the government, and this is actually how they want it. If the government writes something in the solicitation, that's what it's expecting to see, and that's what it's going to evaluate you against. And so you want to make sure that you understand those ground rules in the solicitation, because if you don't, or if you bid on something where you, you know, you're bidding against what you think the solicitation says or should say, and then you lose that proposal opportunity, it's very tough after the fact to challenge those solicitation terms. That is, once the time for bidding passes, those rules are generally locked in and you can't complain about them later on. Sometimes before you submit your proposal, if the contracting officer still won't change the terms or if those terms are unduly restrictive or unfair, if they're tilted towards an incumbent, you might have to file what I call a pre-solicitation protest, a protest that challenges those solicitation terms and try to get them safely resting on what the solicitation says or should say oftentimes is a big mistake for contractors. Another one that I see contractors do is assuming, you know, they'll say something in the proposal and they'll assume that the government knows what they're talking about in their proposal. That sounds kind of silly because you would assume that if somebody is evaluating a proposal, naturally they kind of should know the subject matter and, you know, regular industry practice and all of these things. But a lot of times they don't or they feign ignorance. And so you need to make sure that your proposal is explaining in as much detail as it can, given stage limits and all of that, exactly how you will do the work and exactly what the benefit to the government will be from your approach. Walk them through that process. Just simply telling them you'll do something without explaining how that kind of fits into the process or assuming that they'll know in order to do why you must have done X before why again, isn't good practice when you're preparing a proposal. Really want to make sure that you're explaining things to the government and walking them through your effort and the benefits of that effort. That's really good advice. And, you know, one of the things that I always tell people is you assume that the government actually took the time to write that paragraph that's restricted. There's a good chance, given Mm -hmm. all the proposals they do, that that was language they just had already prepped and they just threw it in there. They may not have even reviewed it. They're like, oh, this section in here about past performance, hey, I need one of those. So that's in there. And they didn't review, you know, how the past performance was needed to be done, whether it was how much of it had to be by the prime or the subs or how many past performance examples. You just assume they actually sat down and said, hey, this is what I want. And they put it in there. You don't think that, hey, they just copied a paragraph from a previous proposal because they were in a time crunch. And there's a lot of stuff like that happens. And so we had a client, a couple of months ago that had one change. Uh, it was two weeks before the proposal was due. They said, hey, we're the incumbent. This is the only government contract we've ever had. And you're asking for three past performances. <laughs> you know, like this is unduly restrictive was the language they used. And guess what? The government was like, oh yeah, sorry about that. And they changed it from three to one, you know, but had they not changed it, this company who was the incumbent couldn't even, you know, submit the RFP. And had they not asked about it, the government would have never reviewed it. That's a really good point there about asking those questions and using the right language because I do think when they see the right language they're like oh this is unduly restrictive there was one we did this past week where I said it's not going to just exclude our client it's going to exclude a lot of other businesses unnecessarily Mm -hmm. and so it was kind of a trigger for the government to go oh yeah we should look at this because my point to the government on one recently was look your Q&A period is due two weeks before the proposal is due this is a 400 page proposal 
proposal. If you don't answer the Q&A, how am I going to write a 400-page proposal in two weeks? It's just not going to happen. I'm going to have to spend money writing a proposal when you may come back four days before this thing is due and say, no, you can't submit because of this. (laughs) The government's not always trying to exclude people. And that's what I try to tell our clients. They're not purposely trying to do that most of the time. There are some cases where that does happen. It's just a matter of a miscommunication on their part and you've got to point it out. And that's the big thing. Because I do think too many people are scared to talk to the government during the RFP process because like, oh, you can't do it. I'm like, "Eh, yeah, you can. (laughs) You know, you could cross the line and have that conversation. There's a process for that and you need to utilize the process. A whole bunch of really good, good stuff here that we've covered today. We're sort of out of time and I know we didn't talk a whole lot about teaming. We talked around teaming. So maybe we can come on and do a separate podcast just about some of the pitfalls around teaming sometime. Any final thoughts for folks on our pitfall discussion today? I think, listen, notwithstanding what we've talked about today, there are a lot of good opportunities out there for small businesses in the federal marketplace. And it just, a lot of times it takes time to kind of understand what they are and understand the process of bidding it. And the point of today's discussion is in the excitement of bidding for opportunities, there are certainly some things to think about. And this isn't meant to dissuade anybody from one strategy or over another, but rather to say, take the time and really kind of understand why you're bidding something the way that you're bidding something or why you're entering into a joint venture relationship versus a teaming relationship. There are always a lot of considerations and no answer is perfect 100% of the time. It's just what makes sense for your company in the situation. And this is something that we help folks with time and time again. Mike, I know that you guys do. If anybody listening has any questions, questions, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to address questions the best I can from folks. There's usually never a black and white answer. And that's part of the fun thing about being a government contractor. That's really good advice. I will leave people with this final thought here. I do think we're in such a rush to get a contract that a lot of times we're desperate to make some of these moves. And a friend of mine and a coach of mine used to say this to me all the time. He would say, Mike, slow the front end down to make the back end smooth. If people would follow Mm -hmm. that advice or we we slow down up front and do it right, take the proper steps that we need to take, do the dating in these relationships to make sure you've got the right partner before you jump into that full-blown relationship, marriage, whatever you want to call it. If we do those things right and slow them down up front, then the back end will be really, really smooth. Relationships will be smooth. Contract execution will be smooth. Your relationship with the government will be smooth and you'll just really, really enjoy it. But the real challenge comes from the rough and the desperation up front. So slow this front end down to make the back end smooth. And I think that is, to me, a a game changer in this whole process. Thanks for coming on and talking with us today, Matt. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.